Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. As the season changes and the weather gets colder, Connecticut residents are wondering, will there be another surge in COVID-19 cases? Coming up, we'll talk about that with Yale Public Health Professor Albert Coe, who was co-chair of the Reopen Connecticut Advisory Group and who continues to serve as an advisor to Governor Ned Lamont on Connecticut's response to COVID-19. We'll also hear from Stanford Mayor David Martin about how his city is working to contain outbreaks. One tool that's helping public health officials respond quickly to cases is not what you might expect us to talk about on a morning talk show, and that's poop. A team of researchers at Yale University has been testing wastewater for COVID in New Haven since March. A study about this testing program was published in the journal Nature Biotechnology just last week. Joining us now on Zoom to talk about it is Jordan Pechia, professor of environmental engineering at Yale University. Jordan, welcome to our show. Good morning, Lucy. It's a pleasure to speak with you. Also with us on Zoom again is Dr. Albert Coe, Department Chair and Professor of Epidemiology at Yale School of Public Health. Dr. Coe, welcome back to the show. Thank you very much, Lucy. And listeners, you can join as well, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Jordan, explain how this all works. So if somebody has coronavirus, how much of the viral particles do they shed in their waste? Well, coronavirus is a respiratory virus, but it belongs to a class of pathogens um, that can infect different types of tissues in the human body. Coronavirus not only can affect our lungs, but it can be present in the human gut. And that means when we use a toilet and we flush the toilet, it goes into our sewer systems and then all collects at a wastewater treatment plant. If we can sample the wastewater treatment plant, then we can get a composite sample of all the people uh, that are served by that treatment plant. In New Haven, that's 200,000 people. Mm. This idea of looking at sewage is not a new idea. Can you talk about how it's been used before to look at other diseases? You know, the main usage has been for polio. And uh, there are some, you know, there are many differences certainly between polio and COVID. But one similarity is that um, when a person is infected with polio, it is more of a rare situation that they would uh, uh, see paralysis type symptoms. More commonly, uh, they can be either asymptomatic, have very light symptoms, um, or have symptoms that are are not indicative of paralysis. And so that disease can go undetected. And in many parts of the developing world where cold polio still exists, uh, the best way uh, researchers in the World Health Organization have found to observe polio and survey it is by using wastewater to sample wastewater in sewer systems in large cities or even in drainage ditches where uh, sewage from small villages or cities with uh, you know uh, unimproved wastewater systems drain into. That way they can sample that and they can see if there's an outbreak or even if polio might exist in that community. 
I mentioned that you and your team started testing wastewater uh, in the New Haven area back in March. So can you break it down for us? How does this work? What exactly are you testing and how do you get the samples? Well, we test uh, something called primary sludge. And and, uh, while everyone might not be familiar with the exact (laughs) workings of a wastewater treatment plant, you know, it's, it's, it's at the beginning of the plant and it's called the headworks. When the wastewater comes in, it's a mixture of, of, of uh, water and what engineers call solids. Those solids go into a large tank where the flow slows down and it gives time for those solids to settle to the bottom. When they settle to the bottom, that's called primary sludge. And we have uh, folks at the treatment facilities that we're working with sample 40 milliliters of that primary sludge each day. We take it to our lab. We extract all of the RNA from that primary sludge, and then we use very sensitive techniques. In fact, the same techniques, quantitative reverse transcriptase PCR, that are used in individual COVID testing to determine the concentration of SARS-CoV-2 RNA in the wastewater. Mm. When you talk about individual testing, you're talking about the nasal swab test? That's right. Yep. So we use exactly the same test. Uh, In fact, uh, part of our protocol you know, list the CDC protocol for testing nasal swabs. Mm. You also talked about extracting the RNA. Can you explain that for us? Yeah, that's the difficult part of it. And so what you have to take is something that's a pretty unpleasant sample, and you have to extract that down into something like 51 millionths of a liter. And that has to be pure, clean RNA. So the virus is an RNA virus. It doesn't have DNA. It just only has single-stranded RNA. And if we can extract that type of RNA from the system, we know the specific sequences that are unique to that virus. If we can identify those and quantify those, that's how we get the concentration of the virus through all that other mess in the wastewater treatment plant. And as far as timing, Jordan, when if someone uses uh, the toilet in New Haven and they flush, how soon do those solids end up in this sludge that then is being tested? Yeah, it, it depends on a few things, but in, you know, like how close you are to the treatment plant. But in general, you know, we think of two to four hours between the flush and it showing up in a treatment plant. It takes another couple hours to make it through that primary sludge treatment. Uh, And so, you know, I would say 10 to 15 hours is a good number between from the time that a person might flush to the time that it would show up in our sample. You're hearing Jordan Peccia here on Where We Live. He's professor of environmental engineering at Yale University. He's been leading a team of researchers who've been analyzing wastewater data from the New Haven area uh, to detect positive uh, COVID cases and to help public health officials when we think about uh, possible outbreaks. Uh, What have you learned from this data, Jordan? Well, I, you know, we learned uh, a few surprising things. The first thing that was surprising, at least to me personally, was that uh, when we started sampling in New Haven, we sampled in March 19th, and, and the uh, outbreak, initial outbreak wave was just getting underway. It peaked in a, around mid-April and then slowly came back down to sort of minimum levels in, in, uh, in the summertime. Uh, when you look at the actual cases per day, you know, the type of data that we're all used to looking at on the DPH website or in the New York Times, you see that uh, that outbreak curve. Well, the wastewater concentrations follow that curve very closely. But there was one specific difference in that, and that is that we were able to see the wastewater peak 
and to rise and then go down on average about seven days before uh, the the data looks if before the data shows if you were uh, looking at cases, and so it gives us some lead time into that. Now there's different ways of looking at cases, but if you just look at the way that the cases are reported out to the public, we were about seven days in front of that. Wow, uh, Dr. Albert Coe, I wanted to bring you into the conversation. Uh, tell us more about uh, from the public health perspective when we hear uh, Jordan talking about this seven-day uh, advance notice of the virus being in uh, the wastewater and how that can help uh, public health officials. Yeah, Lucy. So again, thank you very much for the invitation to um, participate today, and also with my colleague uh, Jordan. And and really, to just to highlight, this is really a uh, an excellent example of innovating thinking, you know, coming out of the state in response to the COVID out- outbreak. Um, you know, we, we've had a long history of identifying pathogens, you know, whether they're in food, whether in water, Legionella is a good example. Um, and uh, I think, uh, and the, the work that Jordan and his team has done has really brought this in response to the epidemic. And uh, as Jordan mentioned, this is, you know, this is kind of the smoking gun or the proverbial smoking gun. You know, they found it with using a very sensitive and specific assay, this virus, you know, in, in sludge, in, in, in sewage. And uh, there's, there's only one way it can get there, and that's by people being infected. Uh, we don't have, you know, for the most part, you know, humans are the primary carriers of this virus. So there's really no other way that it can get there. And as Jordan also outlined, you know, with the New Haven experience, we know that as the epidemic grows, this, you know, um, you can detect increasing amounts of, of the virus. And as it goes down, you, you um, detect decreasing amounts. I think the kind of the key question and, and, and really what Jordan was saying is about that lead time. Uh, when we were hit hard by that, you know, the, the first, um, you know, wave or a first surge, you know, back in Mar- March and April, you know, we had, um, you know, we were relying on on metrics, you know, or indicators uh, that were what we call lagging indicators. These are hospitalizations and these are deaths. And these occur, you know, probably community-wide transmission occurred two, three, four, maybe up to five or six weeks prior then to us detecting signal in the hospitals um, when, case, when case is in. And so what's really exciting about this is the ability to, to identify you know, outbreaks and transmission clusters, you know, ahead of time. I think one of the key questions is how long, and Jordan, I've experienced from New Haven is about seven days. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the big question is, is that going to be the case in all cities? And also how much of the increase corresponds to how much transmission, how many cases that we're going to be possibly seeing in the, um, in the future? And, and that's exactly what Jordan, working with the Department of Public Health, you know, the governor's office is doing through through several cities in, in um, New Haven. So this has really, this is a potentially, you know, has really high potential value to helping really the, the surveillance and really the response to COVID and doing it um, ahead of the ahead of the curve. Mm. Uh, Jordan Pechia, I guess another benefit to this wastewater data when we think about this particular uh, virus, not everyone who has it um, has symptoms. And so this is another way uh, when someone doesn't have symptoms, they're not going to get tested in the traditional way. So another way for public health officials to understand how the virus may be spreading in the community. 
Yeah, that's right. Um, you know, that's one great example. And there are many others. Uh, you know, this, this does give you an independent approach to testing, to looking at at least overall you know, quantities of virus in the community. And so to the extent that there are many things that we don't know, like how many asymptomatic carriers there are, or outbreaks, um, or community spread that somehow goes undocumented, we'll still see that in the wastewater. When you were seeing some of the peaks in, in New Haven uh, earlier, uh, a few months ago, uh, Jordan, how did you and your team communicate with New Haven officials and how did they respond? Uh, I think I, I would think I, I'd say that we communicate well with New Haven officials right now. Early on, we started this uh, just trying to work out, you know, whether we could do this or not. Um, and so we communicated initially with the wastewater treatment facility. And as the data started coming in, um, that's when the director of health and the mayor in New Haven and the city's epidemiologist started to become interested in this. And so we communicate with them at least a couple times a week, reporting uh, what we saw in the wastewater, letting them know if uh, there's something that seems concerning and trying to give them a heads up. So, you know, we send them the data and right now we communicate with them at least once weekly or as needed, you know, depending on what we see in the data. Mm. And indeed for all of the cities that we're working with now, we try to keep a careful um, communication uh, open between our group in the cities and the state as well, uh, just to make sure that, uh, you know, they know exactly what's going on as soon as we know what's going on. Mm. So, Jordan, tell us how many cities are now using this uh, wastewater testing program. There are six uh, uh, metropolitan areas, we'd call them, that are using this wastewater treatment program, and that corresponds to seven wastewater treatment plants. And so in Connecticut, as well as many other states, it, often different cities will share a treatment plant. And so the city number is much more than seven. Uh, the major areas that we're sampling are in Hartford, they're in Bridgeport, which are two plants, they're Stamford, New Haven, Norwich, and New London. Mm. And these are densely populated areas, uh, Dr. Albert Coe. We know that in uh, cities, especially when people are living in close proximity, uh, there are people that are vulnerable in these communities. Another reason why this is important to have in our cities, this type of uh, surveillance program? Yeah, no, you're absolutely right, uh, Lucy. That uh, you know, the this is a virus that, because of uh, it's transmitted person to person, uh, places where you have a lot of social contacts, people coming in within whether it's six feet or so of each other, it can be passed by respiratory droplets. So, so that you know certainly is you know makes our our densely populated, crowded urban centers a setup for for you know, increased transmission burden. Uh, the other reason is, is, as you mentioned before, that, you know, our cities have large proportions of uh, vulnerable populations. And these are populations that don't necessarily uh, have access, uh, you know, the, or the best access to healthcare and to getting tested by COVID. And as Jordan mentioned before, you know, roughly half the people who get COVID, you know, um, don't ever develop symptoms or don't know that they've been infected. And so this is a, a potential mechanism to really detect transmission in places where, you know, we have uh, populations that don't have access or have reduced or limited access to 
to, to testing. And so we can get, again, ahead of the curve and a jump start on, on how to um, address these outbreaks. You're hearing Albert Coe here on Where We Live. He's department chair and professor of epidemiology at Yale School of Public Health. He also serves as an advisor to Governor Lamont on Connecticut's COVID-19 response. Also with us is Jordan Peccia, professor of environmental engineering at Yale University. As we continue to talk about this wastewater testing program uh, to help uh, public health officials contain potential outbreaks, we're going to hear from one of the cities that's participating in this program right after the break. You can join us, too. If you have a question about this type of testing or worried about a potential surge in the winter, uh, we're here to help answer your questions. The number 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. And you can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Earlier this month, the Stanford Advocate reported that City Mayor David Martin sent out an emergency message warning residents the city likely is set for an increase in coronavirus cases. How did he know? The virus was detected in feces from city residents at the local wastewater treatment plant. Now, Stanford is among the cities participating in Yale's COVID-19 wastewater testing program. Mayor David Martin joins us now on Zoom. Zoom. Mayor Martin, welcome back to the show. Uh, good morning. Our listeners can also join at 888-720-9677, especially if you have a question about the next few months. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, so, Dr. Uh, Mayor Martin, when we talk about this wastewater testing program, uh, we heard earlier about how it can really serve as an early warning system. So tell me about how you're using this data in Stanford. Well, it's exactly that. <laughs> uh, to give you a context Uh, We believe that Stanford being very close to New York City and with a very diverse um, economically challenged population in some cases and high density housing, we consider we were the epicenter of risk. Uh, We went from one case, our first case on March 11th, and that person actually was not patient zero in Stanford because they came from out of town and went directly to the hospital, never had any contact with anybody here. We had a thousand cases within four weeks. And I had been looking, I in fact told my uh, director of public safety and my health director, I'm looking for an early warning indicator. Somehow we have to see what's happening before it happens. Um, there, you know, the, the, the delay in, in getting a test, the delay in getting the results of the test um, only for symptomatic patients is just not good enough. And so when I heard of this uh, program they were doing, I was uh, very ecstatic. Um, And maybe I trust the science more than others. I have a degree in biology, but um, I was looking for an early warning indicator. This made perfect sense. Um, I was surprised that the detection had been able to detect um, remnants of RNA in a wastewater stream. I didn't realize that that's the level of detection accuracy they have these days. But nonetheless, it made perfect sense, and I was happy that it was going on. And if I will... Um, I was actually out of town um, um, in, um, uh, you know, that day that I got noticed that we had had an increase. I think, I don't know what the units are, but basically we were having about 1.5 units per day or something in this wastewater treatment. And it had climbed to over tenfold higher 
in a, in three or four days. Mm. And I got that notice, I think at one thirty or two o'clock in the afternoon. And by four thirty, I had put together what we call a reverse 911 call that we send out to residents um, for emergency messages. And we had it translated into Spanish. We sent out a message in Spanish saying, we've got an early indication that something's happening here and we need to step up our vigilance. Mm. So what happened, uh, Mayor Martin, after you put out that alert? How did your city respond? Well, first of all, it wasn't just the 911. It got attention, such as the media picked it up and helped spread that message. Um, I had been worried about people getting more lax anyway. Um, But what we observed is that the advocate actually reported um, that we hadn't seen the increase that was expected in seven days. But we did get an increase in about 10 days. Um, We normally get about five new cases a day. It's about three cases per 100,000 or so. Um, And it jumped, it roughly doubled about 10 days later on a seven-day moving average. Now, that may be statistical noise, but it is sort of interesting that the wastewater predicts something and we see an increase about 10 days later. And interestingly enough, even as we were seeing the case increase, the wastewater numbers were coming back down again. So I believe, and I don't know that the timing is perfect, but I believe that the community took the message to heart. They became more vigilant. It helped drive that wastewater number down. And in fact, our cases dropped back down again, um, more to the levels that we'd had for the past 10 weeks, which is about three, four, five cases per day. Mm. Jordan Peccia is still with us on Zoom, professor of environmental engineering at Yale University. Jordan, can you respond to what Mayor Martin shared with us? And when we think about um, these, this data being used to show that there are positive cases in an area, but not necessarily correlates with the fact that there may be an outbreak. Yeah, that's right. Uh, you know, this is, this is sort of academic research that is going into application all at you know, the same time. You know, typically in academia, we'd like to do this and ruminate on it for a few years, publish our papers, let peer review take their role and answer all the questions and know everything about it. But of course that doesn't work in the middle of a pandemic. And so we're learning on the fly. Uh, We have uh, enough evidence to suggest this might work, that there may be a lead time. And, uh, you know, we're going through this And every time there's a small outbreak, every time we see something in the data, that's a new data point for us to learn and to calibrate and to work out how accurate it's going to be and and how much lead time information we can provide. You can join our conversation here on Where We Live, the number 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Rob's calling in from Litchfield. Rob, what's your question? Yes. Hi. Uh, thanks. Um, my question was, I, I heard or read some information, I think, um, out of New York, that if someone has a coronavirus and then uses a public toilet and flushes afterwards, it creates a plume in the bathroom. I'm curious if the um, speakers have any information on that. And, and more importantly, if so, how do we address it? Mm, good question. Uh, Dr. Albert Koh, could you take that one? Sure. The um, No, so... so Many of these, um, many of the evidence that is um, being used to, do, you know, guide policy actually come from experiments. And uh, I think the experiments that the caller is referring to is is that we know that you know generating aerosols or generating 
um, how to say it, uh, plumes of, of droplets, uh, you know, where, you know, is a potential hazard. Uh, when you flush the toilet, you create these convection currents and you, know, you can have spread of, of droplets within a closed in, indoor, indoor space. So that is a potential theoretical you know, concern. We haven't really seen or had documented evidences of, of outbreaks, like you know, outbreaks coming from public bathrooms. But this is certainly something that's on our, on our mind. Given that the virus can survive or it can be transmitted by droplets, you know what we call airborne droplets, which are, you know, actually fairly larger size droplets, and also the re more recent evidence that actually they could there could be potential aerosol uh, tra transmission, and that really underscores the importance of you know how ventilation, good ventilation, and not staying in for prolonged periods in indoor facilities, especially closed, cramped ones like. Uh, like bathrooms are. Mm. So that, that, that's certainly a concern that we all have. And I think, you know, the big question is how much transmission is driven by that specific mechanism. Now, up, up to now, it seems like it's not major, but it's something that we're concerned about. Mm. I keep thinking of uh, my children going to school a couple days a week, and of course, uh, using the bathroom in school. Not all schools have proper ventilation. So Dr. Ko, the importance of, of continuing to wear masks and, and washing hands. Exactly, exactly, uh, Lucy. That you know, we, we, you know, we do have a lot of evidence, and as uh, as you just mentioned, uh, face masks are are um, you know effective prevention methods for um, you know for for against the transmission of COVID. Uh, I think we heard several weeks ago the um, uh, Dr. Redfield, the uh, CDC director, saying that. Um, in, in perhaps a, a glib way, but that, you know, face masks are actually, can be equivalent to vaccines in terms of how, how we can prevent it and, and really keep ourselves safe. You can join our conversation again if you have a question about uh, both testing or just general questions about a coronavirus and, and the upcoming months. The number 888-720-9677 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, Mayor Martin, I wanted to go back to you. I remember talking with you a few months ago uh, right after uh, the peak and you talked about why it was important for your city to proactively go to particular parts of Stamford to test near apartments uh, to, because people are living in close proximity. You didn't want to wait until someone showed up at a hospital and was sick. And so I'm wondering when you think about the cost for this individual testing versus uh, the, being, you know, participating in this wastewater testing program, there must be some financial benefits as well. Well, these are, to me, they are two different complementary um, programs. The early warning that we can learn and, and basically if the community is getting out of control, then I, I know ahead of time and we can re react to it. Or in, in this case, I think we help push it back. Mm -hmm. um, but the other one is something that I don't know whether it was Albert or Jordan already said is that it isn't just high density. It mm -hmm. is um, different socioeconomic status, their inability to get um, traditional health care. Um, or at least they're historically they haven't gotten healthcare. And what we started doing is um, once we got um, an agreement with the hospital to share the testing data, we could find the exact address of the person and then we knew where these cases were occurring. And what we observed is that in the um, uh, poor neighborhoods in high rise buildings, we had a lot of cases. 
and it wasn't every place. It was here and there. And so we would go with our testing and we would go to that location rather, you know, trying to get people to say, well, call your primary care physician and then schedule an appointment and then drive over here and then wait in line. We went to their location and said, um, we'll get you insurance. We can't get you insurance. We'll give you a test anyway. And we actually would go door to door knocking on the doors of the people living in these apartment buildings and say, come down. The testing is across the street. And, um, we tested, you know, thousands of people um, using this mechanism and that evolved. It evolved to, we were working with our churches. We were working with the NAACP. We were working with um, Building One Community, which serves the immigrant community and saying, you know how to reach out to your community. And I think they would trust you to come in and get a test. And we ran thousands of tests through that to reach out to communities that typically didn't avail themselves of healthcare, give them tests. And sure enough, we were finding both symptomatic and asymptomatic mm. cases of COVID among these tests. And I think it helped their health and it helped the community because by identifying those potential um, people who might be spreading the disease and getting them um, the proper medical care and getting them into quarantine, it protects the community as well. It is a, in my opinion, it is a huge benefit to the community, both health and interestingly enough, as you said, economically. You're hearing Stanford Mayor David Martin. Also with us is Jordan Peccia, Professor of Environmental Engineering at Yale University as we talk about this wastewater testing program. Uh, Jordan, when we think about these wastewater treatment plants serving hundreds of thousands of people in a in a region or area, what about particular uh outbreaks that we hear about, whether it's at uh, near the University of Connecticut or uh, at nursing homes, uh, particularly the the Norwich case that was really troubling. Uh, those are much uh, smaller areas. And so can something like this be used in, in those situations? Yeah, there are different population levels in which you could apply this type of technology. And, and I would mention that, uh, you know, we started sampling Norwich towards the middle to end of that nursing home outbreak. And we absolutely saw that outbreak in the wastewater. Uh, but, you know, we're sampling right now wastewater treatment facilities in cities. And they range from population served about 20,000 to over 400,000 people. Overall, it's capturing about a million people in Connecticut. And we've chosen to do that to get, you know, the biggest bang for the buck in this case and, and to be able to um, capture the most cases potentially, but there are many other applications that can be useful. So for example, you can sample sewers as they lead from nursing homes or dormitories. And in that case, the data analysis is very simple. It's either positive or it's negative. If it's negative, good. If it's positive, you're in trouble uh, and you need to go back and do some testing. Uh, you can move it up to a larger area. You could capture uh, just one section of a city if you had a specific concern about that, that area of a city or a neighborhood by uh, isolating and, and sampling from sewers that are serving that section of a city. So it can be, it can be uh, adjusted for anywhere from something like 500 people to 500,000 people. Mm. I mentioned uh, UConn. Uh, joining us now on the phone is Dr. Kendra Moss, uh, who is a researcher at UConn. Uh, Kendra, welcome to our show. 
Thanks for having me. Uh, so I understand that you have been uh, looking at wastewater data uh, for Yukon's community. Can you tell us uh, what you've been doing and what you've observed? Yeah. So uh, when Jordan's preprint came out in uh, late April or early May, uh, I really wanted to apply that to Yukon. Uh, and I contacted him, and basically the way that our wastewater treatment facility is, is we can't, we simply don't have the same type of sample as a large facility has. Um, so I had to, to kind of revisit methods and work with raw sewage. Um, that actually enables me to test the wastewater treatment plant and um, just sewer pipes with the same method. So that's what I've been doing. We started collecting samples in late June from the wastewater treatment plant and then have been putting in composite sampler pumps around campus uh, since then. Mm. So tell us how the university... Go ahead, Kendra. Oh, sorry. I was just going to say, where Jordan was saying that you need to really worry when you find a signal from a particular dorm, Mm. we actually find low-level signals from all of our locations. Um, And I think it just has to do with the length of time that people continue to shed the virus um, at low levels after they've recovered. So we are, like Jordan, we're looking at trends. We're looking to see if it's increasing. Mm. And how have university officials responded to this data when, again, in the news we hear about particular dorms uh, having to quarantine and cases rising? Yeah, so I wasn't given the go-ahead to do this until I got someone who would respond to the data. And that has been the Student Health and Wellness on campus, the Student Health Center. So I give this data to Student Health Center. Um, We share it with the executive team um, daily. And the student, uh, Shaw, the Student Health and Wellness, takes that data and helps to direct their surveillance testing. So if I start to see an increase in a particular uh, cluster of buildings, Shaw will then the next day or a few days do more of their their surveillance there rather than completely random. Mm, that's really interesting. Kendra, I apologize if I said your last name incorrectly. Can you say it for no, us? No, you got it right. Oh, okay. <laughs> I just wanted to double check. <laughs> well, thank you for telling us about what you're doing at UConn. It's definitely interesting and ties in well with what we're talking about. Uh, Dr. Albert Coe, who's with us on Zoom, can you talk more? Again, you're advising, you continue to advise uh, Governor Lamont, and I'm wondering how uh, this type of program can be replicated in other situations. I know I mentioned UConn and some of the outbreaks there, but when we think about our prison population. I'm just wondering, are there other conversations happening to make sure this is being done in other places beyond just the large cities? Uh, so, Lucy, let me, let me just um, uh, pick up on what uh, Mayor Martin said. And, and, and actually, he, he actually read the playbook mm-hmm. on sound uh, public health practice about really what needs to be done. I think there are two basic messages that, you know, underscore that. One is, is that the most effective responses are those that are going to be done proactively, that are going to be done before large outbreaks, whether they're in nursing home, prisons, or in the community happen, rather than reactively. And then the second factor that underlies all of that, and I think the the example of the alerts, whether they're, you know, what uh, the mayor had declared for, you know, uh, Stanford or what uh, the Department Commissioner Gifford declared for, um, when the Department of Public Health uh, declared for, for Danbury in their ongoing outbreak is that, that you know, the, that by giving these alerts, the, probably what we found throughout the, 
you know, the, the epidemic here in the United States is that the, probably the most important preventive mechanisms are the, the behavioral changes that uh, people do by themselves. Um, you know, the real, the work done by our citizens in, in maintaining social distancing using face masks. So that's a really important lever, you know, to, mm-hmm. to get out public awareness. And, and, and I think the example of wastewater uh, surveillance that Jordan has um, mm-hmm. developed is a, is a good example of how to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Dr. Uh, Kendra Moss, you know, uh, really also, you know, highlighted the real need to tie the, this wastewater surveillance with good outbreak investigations so we can validate. She mentioned that there are low-level signals. We know that the virus RNA or the virus can persist, you know, for extended peop- uh, times in, in people who have been infected. So we really need to do a better job of understanding what's signal and what's noise. Mm-hmm. and. And, you know, by doing those really granular, intensive outbreak investigations together using this new toolbox of wastewater surveillance, we can we can certainly see how it's going to work, whether it's on a neighborhood block, whether it's in a prison, whether it's in a nursing home. And I think that's the future work that needs to be done, Mm -hmm. Uh, really tying together what we call the epidemiology, you know, the study of disease causation together with these kind of new technological tools. That, that's future work, and, and there's more work ahead for us to do, and and, uh, and and I think this highlights kind of the unique aspect of the state of how we have a really close link between government, public health, and, uh, and researchers such as Jordan. Uh, Jordan Pechia, I have a question for you from Twitter. Uh, someone wrote, the Greater New Haven Water Pollution Control Authority receives sewage directly from four different municipalities, ranging from suburban to semi-rural, and has sludge importation contracts with dozens of other munis, municipalities around the state. How would one geographically pinpoint an outbreak from this data? Uh, we would not. So, uh be able to geographically pinpoint it other than say the outbreak would be within those 200,000 people that are served. Uh, but, but what I would say about that is that the municipalities are New Haven, Hamden, East Haven, and, and parts of Woodbridge. Uh, the importation of sludge is a different situation. Uh, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a fine distinction, but um, sludge is not always sludge. And so we're sampling primary sludge. This is the sludge that is, comes from that first sedimentation step in a treatment plant. Other treatment plants around the state do make sludge as well, but they import it into the treatment plant in New Haven, and that goes into an incinerator. We don't see any of that sludge. Well, thank you for answering that, Jordan Pecci. It's been really interesting talking with you, Professor of Environmental Engineering at Yale University. Thank you for your time today on Where We Live. My pleasure, Lucy. Dr. Albert Coe is going to stay with us again. He's an advisor to Governor Lamont on Connecticut's COVID-19 response, and he's a professor at Yale School of Public Health. And Stanford Mayor David Martin will be here, too, to continue talking about how municipalities and leaders are thinking about a potential surge in the next few months. You can join us, too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live.
This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. With us today on Zoom, David Martin, Mayor of Stamford, Connecticut, and Albert Coe, Department Chair and Professor of Epidemiology at Yale School of Public Health. Uh, I wanted to ask both of you about fatigue. Uh, we've all been through a lot and having to quarantine, dealing with shutdowns, trying to figure out uh, this new uh, balance of whether you continue to work remotely or you still have to go into work and taking precautions, worried about our kids. I wanted to start with you, Mayor Martin. Are you seeing fatigue in your community? And when we hear that it might get worse again in our state, how do you help your residents continue to take the precautions necessary? Lucy, I'm fatigued. I'm tired of this. (laughs) You and me both. (laughs) We're all tired of this. Um, But nonetheless, you know, the disease is out there. Um, and, you know, and I'm promoting wearing masks. I try to be an example in wearing masks. And occasionally I get out of the car and forget and have to run back. Um, but this fatigue turns into what I call a lack of vigilance. Mm-hmm. And we're balancing it with the need to educate kids in our schools. And how do we keep it safe? And what do we do? And we're balancing it with the economic viability of our restaurants and our retail stores. And I, I won't pretend that this isn't a challenge. Um, I believe that for the most part, um, the state under Governor Lamont and others have gotten it right. Um, We were working on our own reopening guidelines, and for the most part, we had something very similar to what the state did. The state, you know, might have been a little bit more strict or a little bit less, pretty close to what we were thinking, and, and caught some things that we had missed, so that was good. I would tell you that right now, though, I'm concerned about some of our restaurants. Mm -hmm. And in fact, I'm having a letter go out to all the restaurants and we are stepping up our ability to enforce. And we have a simple system. We'll give you a verbal warning. We're coming back in 24 to 48 hours. You get a fine and we're coming back in 24, 48 hours. And if you're still there, we're shutting you down. We don't have time to mess around with this. Um, and, And for the most part, the restaurants are fine. But when one or two or three start you know, sort of pushing the envelope too much. And then everybody else starts pushing the envelope because that seems to be okay with everyone. And then the original people push it more. Then you've got this lax um, behavior that gives rise to cases. And I, and to this point about the wastewater, um, I'm looking at the chart right here, right now. And it's not as high as it was right at the end of August versus September, but it's beginning to drift up again. And I can go out and see some of the um, behavior that's going on in the restaurants. And I'm saying, this is not, this is not good. Mm. So we're working on that in terms of communicating to them and setting up enforcement um, that we will be kicking off here in the next few days. So when you talk about the restaurants specifically, Mayor Martin, are, are you saying that some establishments may not be wearing their masks or not uh, taking the capacity restrictions seriously? Well, for instance, I've seen something on social media about a particular retail store and people are complaining because they go in and the um, the employees, they are wearing their masks around their chin, not around their nose and whatnot. And it's going to cost them business because it's spreading on social media. But I've got to send somebody up there and say, guys, this isn't this isn't right. On the restaurants, what I'm observing is the tables are spaced appropriately apart and those tables could seat three or four, maybe five in some cases. But late at night, 
on a Thursday, Friday night or a Saturday night when we typically don't have our health people um, going around, they don't have three, four or five. They've got 14 people spread around that table. And it's almost like it's just one big happy party from one table to another. Um, and I've got to do some enforcement and reset the expectations. That's not acceptable. Uh, Albert Coe, I'm wondering if you could respond to what Mayor Martin shared and how uh, you and and others within Governor Lamont's team are advising municipalities who are seeing different behaviors popping up. Yeah, so I, I think um, when when, um, when the mayor said or Mayor Martin said that uh, the uh, you know that he was fatigued, I think that resonated you know with uh, with all of us. Uh, you know, all of the, all of our population, our fellow citizens, neighborhoods, you know, have been have went through a lot, you know, over the last six, seven months. Uh, and I would also add that, you know, in, in, in addition to the kind of fatigue on the personal side, you know, this has had a real impact uh, on the livelihood and the economy and, and, and really for our vulnerable communities who are most most at risk for suffering. From from uh, the reduced, you know, the kind of the reduced social distancing um, prevention preventive mechanisms that we've had, such as the restaurant business and the service mm-hmm. in industry. Uh, but that underlies the score, and, and I think we just have to look at the lessons learned. Uh, you know, when we look at Europe or when we look at the rest of the United States, you know, where they got hit hard like we did, but they opened up quickly, and uh, we could see resurgences, and, and pretty severe resurgence in Europe. France, Italy, uh, United Kingdom, Spain, they're all going through major resurgences, perhaps as bad as the, their initial one. And that really underscores the importance of many of the things that the mayor was saying and that the, and that the governor's office have been you know, uh, promoting is, is that we need to maintain that social distancing and the face mask use. That's what's protecting us at this moment. And, that, you know, and this is where fatigue and erosion of those kind of practices are really quite dangerous, especially as we're going into the winter season. If we're going to safely open up, keep our schools open, we're going to have to push, you know, the levers on, 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 you know, the sound practices, whether it's social distancing, face mask use through guidances, rules and regulations, as well as, you know, communication campaigns. And this has been, you know, um, I think the, the priority of the governor's office and the Department of Public Health in, in really uh, underscoring the importance of these sound public health practices and in working with uh, cities such as uh, Stanford in, in um, implementing these. Well, I want to thank Stanford Mayor David Martin for joining us here on Where We Live. Uh, Albert Coe, we just have a couple of minutes left. I wanted to ask you, just looking forward, you mentioned it's important for residents to continue social distancing, continue wearing masks. But when it comes to the cold weather, uh, flu season is around the corner. I wonder if you could just uh, tell us some final thoughts about um, other things we should be thinking about um, as it gets colder. Yeah, we're really concerned, of course, as 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 much of the country is about the upcoming winter season. Uh, you know, first of all, because uh, you know when you spend more time indoors, the, there's in, more increased risk, especially in congregate settings mm-hmm. where there are multiple gather, you know, many people in in a gathering, you know, for transmission. Uh, the second thing is is that you know if we have concomitant parallel epidemics of uh, COVID and influenza. Now that that's certainly a threat to our hospital system and you know, healthcare systems, and, and having hospitals go into surge crisis. 
um, that scores how underscores how ever more critical it is to really keep up the good work that you know that the citizens of Connecticut have been doing with respect to social distancing, without with respect to to face mask use, whether indoors or, or outdoors. I think um, you know this is unfortunately the proverbial new normal for us for 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 quite a while. Even you know we're we're hoping that a, a, an effective and safe vaccine is going to be developed, but it's going to take at least a year mm -hmm. to get that to our general population. And it's not even clear that that vaccine may help us reduce, you know, um, you know, deaths and hospitalizations, but it may not necessarily prevent or block transmission. And so we're really going to have to get it right in terms of, you know, of all the behavioral interventions, having people do sound social distancing and face mask use for, for, for months to come, especially helping us get through the uh, winter season. Uh, Dr. Koh, not everyone was pleased to hear that uh, the governor uh, signed an executive order where people could be fined if they don't wear face masks. But is this a, an effort to combat that fatigue that we were talking about, where people become lax? Yeah, exactly. And we know that, you know, in public health, you have to kind of push out all the stops, you know. Uh, you know, one is, is promoting and... Uh, and really looking at shining examples and many of the the kind of the policies, sound evidence-based policies that Mayor Martin is, is in, uh, implementing in, um, in, in Stanford. But we also have to be clear that, you know, key issues like wearing face masks, like quarantine, isolation, those things that protect the public in general, that they are enforced. Well, thank and, you, Dr. Uh, Albert Coe. Just... We're almost uh, out of time, but we so appreciate your time today on Where We Live. Thank you. Thank you very much, Lucy. This is a great pleasure. Today's show produced by Carmen Baskoff. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for listening.